European folklore, a changeling is a mischievous or troublesome fairy child which has been left in the place of a human child, with a real human child stolen away by fairies and hidden away in the fairy realm. I'm Kat. I'm Taylor. And yes, this is still Square Mile of Murder. We have not become a folklore podcast over the past week. So why are we talking about fairies and changelings if we've not become a folklore podcast, we hear you ask. This week, we are exploring a couple of different missing children's cases, wherein the children have been found, but they're not quite the same as they were before. And one of these stories actually inspired the 2008 Angelina Jolie film, Changeling. But if you do want us to start a folklore podcast, come and tell us on social media, because I'm kind of down for that. (laughs) And I can see Taylor rolling her eyes already, so... It's just more stuff to edit. But no, I do yeah, love we're getting better at it. So yeah, Gunstream. I do love folklore and like mythology. So I I do find all that fascinating. So who knows if there's a demand, we can supply. Yeah. Um, but before we get into our changeling stories for this week, um, we did want to say a huge thank you to everyone who voted for us at the. British Codpast Awards. Now I see that it's been written like that. Hmm. 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 Okay. Um, Well, you did rename it and then... I did. Didn't... I mean, you could have edited it out of the last episode when you called it the Codpast Awards. Where's the fun in that, though? No. No. You know. You gave us all free reign to call it Codpast. If you can't laugh at yourself, what are you doing? Um, laugh at your friends instead <laughs> um but yeah uh podcast words podcast words whatever you may call it um thanks for anyone and everyone who did vote for us um this is the first episode that we've recorded since the awards happened uh in in real time last saturday in your time last last saturday <laughs> i believe and as as expected, we did not win the Listener's Choice Award. Uh, we don't know where we came on the list. Not in the top 20, as it turns out. But that's, again, as to be expected. Um, but uh, that's okay. Because it's still cool to even be sort of involved. Um, so, yeah. Thanks for voting for us and supporting us every week, whether that's by listening or you know, hanging out with us on social media or signing up for our Patreon. It, all of it really means a lot. And, um, we've been super humbled and, and, and are very grateful for all your support. Yeah. Thank you to everyone. Yeah. For supporting us on this journey. Yes. Uh, and now on with today's show. We come with the, (laughs) we come with music and sound effects now. Hundreds of thousands of children and young people go missing every year. According to the Global Missing Children's Network, 112,853 children and young people went missing in 2018 in the UK. And in America, that number was actually 460,000. In the UK, a a person is reported missing on average every 90 seconds. Fortunately, according to the government... The large majority of these missing young people are found safe and well within 48 or even 72 hours. 
but for the rest, once those first 72 hours have passed, the chances of finding a missing child alive are horrendously slim. In the small number of cases where a missing child is found alive and well, after having been missing for a long period of time, it should be one of the happiest days for the family. But for Christine Collins, being reunited with her son Walter five months after he went missing on a trip to the cinema in Los Angeles in 1928 only brought more heartache in what is perhaps the most well-known of these missing children changeling stories. So that... Try that when you've, yeah, try saying that when you've had a few drinks. <laughs> um, Christine Collins was a single mother bringing up her nine-year-old son, Walter Jr., in the Lincoln Heights neighborhood of Los Angeles, while her estranged husband, Walter Sr., was serving time in Folsom State Prison for robbery. Um, on Saturday, March 10th, 1928, Christine gave her son money to go to the cinema. Um, now in the 2008 film, this is because she had promised to take him, but she got called into work. However, we couldn't find any verification of this. Most articles just say that she gave him money to go to the cinema. So could, could be that she had to go to work. Could be he just went to the movies who knows um so that evening when walter hadn't returned from the cinema um christine called the lapd to report him missing initially the police didn't take christine's concerns too seriously believing that walter would just find his way home within a day or two um but when that didn't happen they launched a huge search effort and the investigation followed up on hundreds of leads and sightings without any success that was until one day, five months later, when a boy in DeKalb, Illinois, just outside of Chicago, claimed to be the missing Walter Collins. Letters and photographs were exchanged between Christine and the boy claiming to be Walter. And as the boy in the photo looked like her son, Christine paid the $70 for the boy to take the 2,000-mile train journey from DeKalb to LA. And $70 back then would be the equivalent of $1,049 or, or £836 today. That is no cheap train fare. No, that is like a very, very expensive train fare. <laughs> yes, you can travel around Europe for a month on the train for less than that. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, Walter's disappearance had garnered national attention with increasing pressure on the LAPD, negative publicity following their inability to find the missing boy so the LAPD arranged a very public reunion between Christine and Walter at the train station you know surrounded by the press and onlookers hoping that this spectacle would help negate the months of bad press they'd been on the receiving end of and as the LAPD is very well known to be you know it, it was the subject of many corruption scandals let's put it this way <laughs> And the city was also still reeling from the kidnapping and murder of 12-year-old Marion Parker in December 1927. So they hoped this uplifting reunion story would distract from these scandals. But things didn't exactly go to plan. So Walter showed virtually no emotion upon being reunited with his mother. Um, and now you would expect that a child who'd been separated from his mother for five months uh, would be you know, a little bit excited, um, but he wasn't. And Christine immediately told officers, uh, 
at the train station that he was not her son. And although the boy did bear a physical resemblance to Walter in the photos which had been sent to Christine by law enforcement in Illinois, in person, she realized it, that's just what it was. It was just a resemblance. Um, now, the police tried to explain these differences away as five months of being missing and moved across the country had taken its toll on Walter and that Christine had misremembered minor details about her son's disappearance. Which, like, fuck you, man. Like, Yeah, that's... <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, okay, five months. Yeah, okay, there would be some physical differences. But not If you've huge. been kidnapped and held against your will for five months. But nine years old, that's a whole person. Yeah. With, like, individual characteristics and everything. Yeah. Um, and, like, what a, what a gall to say, like, oh, you think this isn't your son? You're just, you just don't remember enough yeah about him like Like, you're wrong mother of this child or not (laughs) as the case may be yeah (laughs) just really shitty um so in the weeks following the reunion christine is quoted as saying yes he looks like walter and in some ways he acts like my son but i'm still not certain about it you see walter was quiet and well behaved he always called me mother This child calls me Ma, and at times is hard to handle. I certainly hope he is my son, but somehow I can't bring myself to believe it. So, having received five months' worth of bad publicity for their failure to solve the case, the LAPD forced Christine to pose for photos and take the boy home with her, telling her to try him out for a few weeks. Like like he's a, a, a fucking, like... Like a used car. A used car, literally. Or like a a mattress, you know, where you get the like 60-day oh, yeah. money-back guarantee on your brand new mattress. And like, he's a child. Yeah, he's an actual human, human child. And as many of us had when we were growing up, Walter's height had been marked against the door frame in the family home. Did you have that as a kid? We still have that. Yeah. In our house in Vermont, we've got... Me all the way up, and then also like um, my favorite uh, stuffed animal. So we've got like Aww. me at like two years old, and then we've got panda, and then <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know I didn't I didn't make it very far. So the the highest or the like most recent marking is from when I was in eighth grade, and I just haven't grown since then. <laughs> yeah, we used to have that on a door downstairs in our house but that door has since been replaced so we don't have it anymore but yeah christine had you know regularly measured walter's height and when she measured the boy against walter's last height mark he was two inches shorter the boy was also circumcised which walter was not like two major things yes he didn't shrink Christine took the boy to the dentist and had the dentist compare the boy's teeth to Walter's dental records. Uh, The dentist concluded that the boy was not Walter, as he did not have the same fillings as Walter had. And this dentist wrote a statement for Christine to take to the police, saying that this was a different child. She also went to his school, and his teacher came to the same conclusion. 
the boy behaved differently. He interacted with other students differently. And he didn't seem to recognize his friends or where to sit or any of the staff. And this teacher also made a statement for police. So armed with these statements, Christine once again returned to the police station to tell them that she was sure this boy was not Walter and asked them to begin searching for Walter again. But this is the police. And they weren't about to accept a woman's claim that she knew who her son was or wasn't. Because God forbid. Um... So they conducted a number of, quote, tests on the boy to prove that Christine Collins, the dentist and the school teacher, didn't know what the hell they were all talking about. Um, these tests included making the boy find his way home from memory and seeing if his pet dog recognized him. And when the boy found his way home and the dog recognized him, they concluded that obviously this was Walter Collins. Um, <laughs> real scientific there. Uh, I mean, puppies are just very excited to see children, though, aren't they? Right. Like, although I, I don't know if it was a puppy or a dog, but yeah, dogs are happy to see children. They like to play with children. Yeah, dogs and are happy to see people in general. Like, yeah. they just want to hang out with you. They're the best. And he's of been us. living there for three weeks at this time, so he na- he knows where he lives. Yeah, exactly. as well, so he can find his way home. Yeah. Not a great way to prove identity. Um, No. uh, They also had a doctor visit Christine and tell her that her son's spine could have shrunk due to stress. I mean, if that was possible, I would be about three inches tall right now. So. I mean, I have degenerative spinal disease, which makes my spinal discs wear away a lot faster than they should. My spine isn't shrinking. I'm not getting shorter yet. You didn't You didn't get two inches shorter in five months. I did not. No. It's been five years. I'd be a lot, lot shorter. <laughs> it's like when my mother... I don't know spine left. <laughs> when my mother had um, neck surgery when I was in high school, she actually grew like a half an inch. Wow. Yeah. She was bragging about that for years later. <laughs> um yeah so stress shrinking look out for it everyone be prepared as the as the uk government stay alert control the shrinking (laughs) (laughs) oh christ the world we live in today all righty um and in 1927 as it turns out yeah uh so (laughs) Despite the police's best efforts to pawn this boy off on Christine, uh, she was adamant that he was not her son. Police chief J.J. Jones called her a bad mother, accusing her of shirking her responsibilities and stated that she had grown to enjoy the freedom of not having a child to look after in those five months and that she didn't want to go back to life as a single mother. He also complained that she was trying to ridicule the police who had worked tirelessly to find her son. So he's like, oh, she doesn't want to be a mother yeah that's why she's begging you to find her son exactly like there's a there's a pretty big disconnect there if you ask me yeah um but christine refused to back down because she knew this was not her son 
So the LAPD, LAPD did what they tended to do with all women who questioned them. They had her locked up in the psychiatric ward on a code 12. And it was later revealed that a code 12 was a code used by the LAPD for difficult women or women who were becoming an inconvenience to them. Great. And let's be honest, it wasn't a particularly unusual way to treat women back in the day. Let's be honest, even now, a woman raises her voice, she's hysterical. A man raises his voice, he's assertive. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, so if you were a man in a position of power and a woman stood up to you, yeah, you would just say they were hysterical and have them locked up and left to rot in an asylum for having the audacity to question you, a man. And we're not exaggerating. You know, from about 1850 onwards, you could have a woman under your control, so a wife, daughter or sister, admitted to the asylum for disagreeing with you. That is how it is worded. Lovely. In these olden timey reports. Uh, and coincidentally, the woman's assets automatically passed to the nearest male relative if she was incarcerated in a mental facility. That's awfully convenient, isn't it? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, but I do have one question about all of this. So they're accusing Christine of shirking her parental responsibilities, yet they also throw her in a psych ward. So obviously if she's in the psych ward, she cannot take care of any child. So who was then looking after the boy who claimed to be Walter? Yeah, I don't get that, like... Again, you're saying she doesn't want to be a mother and she's not, you know, fulfilling her parental responsibilities, but you're literally making it impossible for her to fulfill such yeah. responsibilities. So, you know, need a better plan there, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Christine was admitted to the Los Angeles Public Hospital but the doctor who treated her told her that she could be released if she just admitted that she was wrong and the police were right and that this random boy was, in fact, her son. <laughs> Simple, really. Oh, yeah. Um, but Christine refused to back down and she remained locked up in the public hospital. While she was incarcerated, local minister Presbyterian Gustav Breigleb took up Christine's story. He was known for taking up many local causes and campaigning on issues he was passionate about. Uh, the Reverend campaigned for Christine to be released and had previously been critical of the LAPD for their handling of the initial search for Walter. He also advocated for the other women who'd been locked up on Code 12s by the LAPD with no real basis for their internment. So while Christine was in the hospital and the Rev was campaigning for her release, the LAPD finally decided to interview the boy claiming to be Walter. I have so many questions. Uh, Why didn't they do this first? Uh, so when he was found in Illinois, the local police in DeKalb had been skeptical of his story as to how he ended up 2,000 miles away from home. And we couldn't actually find out what story he gave. It doesn't seem to be written down anywhere. It's just described as like a vague or hazy story. Um, but the LAPD was so desperate to close the case, they insisted that the boy's story was true and arranged for him to be brought back to LA. But whilst interviewing him, they also brought in a handwriting expert 
who concluded that the boy's handwriting did not match the known, han- known handwriting of Walter Collins before he disappeared. Which I know is not an exact science, but still, you know, finally, you know, the mother didn't know, the dentist didn't know, the teacher didn't know, but the handwriting expert, he knows. Yeah, exactly. And in subsequent questioning, the boy finally admitted he was not Walter Collins, but instead Arthur Hutchins, a 12-year-old who had run away from his father and stepmother in Iowa. Aha, the truth comes out. So Arthur was hitchhiking around the Midwest when someone mentioned his resemblance to a missing boy from L.A. And so he decided to hand himself into the authorities as the missing boy so he could go to Los Angeles. When he finally admitted this to the LAPD, he gave the excuse that he was a huge fan of Western movies and wanted to meet his favorite cowboy actor, Tom Mix. Well, the Lord does love a trier, as they say. I mean, it's one way to get a free ride. Very expensive ride (laughs) to Los Angeles. Yeah. I wonder if he ever had to pay the money back. Probably not. In 1933, Arthur wrote that he impersonated Walter to escape from his stepmother. Quote, a person doesn't realize what a hell this world can be at the hands of a stepmother that doesn't love or want you. He did, however, fail to mention he was also running from his hometown police. Um, That summer, he was arrested for stealing, and when the police uh, required him to attend a weekly check-in with them, he ran away to Illinois. Um, Arthur was returned to the custody of his father and stepmother in Iowa, and he attended the Iowa State Training School for Boys, a rehabilitation program for juvenile delinquents. As an adult, Arthur sold concessions at carnivals and trained horses, and he died from a blood clot in 1954. Despite Arthur's confession, it was still another 10 days before Christine was released from the psych ward. And upon her release, she sued the LAPD and Captain J.J. Jones for his treatment of her and her unawful, unawful, unlawful, for her unlawful internment in the psychiatric ward at the LA General Hospital. Uh, Christine won. And the judge awarded her the sum of $10,800, which, surprise, surprise, J.J. Jones never paid her a cent. What a dick. And today, that would be worth $161,000 or £129,000. That's a big chunk of change to just not pay back. Yeah. I'm I'm proud of her for suing, though, because mm-hmm. so many women wouldn't have an you know, so many women were just chucked in psych wards for disagreeing with men. Yeah. And I know in the film, The Changeling, all the women event who were um, interred on Code 12s were eventually released uh, due to the Rev and his campaigning mm-hmm. and obviously the publicity surrounding Christine Collins, but I don't know if that happened in real life or not. Yeah, hopefully. I hope it did. Yeah. And uh, the LA... LAPD took this case extremely seriously by suspending J.J. Jones for a couple of months before permanently reinstating him. Uh, So now the case of the changeling has been solved. There was still the original case that wasn't answered. What happened to Walter Collins? Good question. Um, So the disappearance of Walter Collins was officially solved a few months later when he was deemed to be one of the Wineville chicken coop murder victims. 
Um, and this was a series of murders carried out by Gordon Stewart Northcott and his mother, Sarah Louise Northcott. Um, the murderous mother and son duo from Wineville, which uh, is in between Anaheim and San Bernardino, had kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and murdered as many as 20 young boys from Southern California between 1926 and 1928. Uh, just on a side note, this case was so awful that in 1930, the town of Wineville renamed itself Mira Loma to try and distance itself from the murders. See, that makes a lot of sense because when I was reading through this and I was like, oh, it's between Anaheim and San Bernardino. I'm surprised I haven't like seen it or like passed through it. Well, it's because <laughs> it's it's got a different name now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so in December of 1928, almost nine months after Walter had gone missing, Sarah Northcott confessed to his murder. Uh, Gordon Northcott always maintained his innocence, but in 1929, he was convicted of three murders, uh, those of Lewis and Nelson Winslow, aged 12 and 10, and a third boy referred to only as the Headless Mexican. Uh. Yeah, that... We have where to start with that. The headless Mexican was a boy who was determined by the LAPD to be of Mexican descent, although it is possible he was from another Central or Southern American country. Um, and his head was never found, only his body, and so he's never been positively identified, which is also why they can't determine that he's actually Mexican. And just like, yeah. Like, Come up with a different just, name. Just boy, boy yeah. A. John Doe. Or just some, yeah, anything. Just That's anything. <laughs> Fuck you, 1920s LA. Yeah. Um, so Sarah was sentenced to life without parole, and Gordon was sentenced to death, and he was hanged in San Quentin prison on October 3rd, 1930, at age 23. However... Walter's remains were never found, and despite Sarah's confession, Christine remained hopeful that her son was still alive, and her resolve was stiffened when another suspected victim of the Northcots came forward five years later and told police that he was held in the chicken coop with Walter and the Winslow brothers, but he had escaped. Um, Christine held out hope that Walter had also escaped, and she remained in Los Angeles and kept searching for him until she died at the age of 75, 36 years after Walter disappeared. So we're now going to move from a changeling case that had a definite conclusion uh, to another changeling case, which is now over 100 years old, which has neither a conclusion nor any closure for anyone. Great. My favorite kind of case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know how most people who are into true crime have that one unsolved case that keeps them up at night? This is mine. <laughs> it is the disappearance and reappearance of Bobby Dunbar. Robert Clarence Dunbar, known as Bobby, was born in August 1908 and lived in Opelousas, Louisiana. And you better bet we looked up how to pronounce that. <laughs> <laughs> and Opelousas is about 50 miles from the state capital of Baton Rouge. Um, so... Bobby lived with his parents, Percy and Lessie Dunbar, and his younger brother, Alonzo. 
On the 23rd of August, 1912, the family were on a trip to the family's cabin at Swayze Lake, about 25 miles away from Opelousas. They were joined by other family members and friends. Percy had to leave early for work, which led to a bit of a tantrum from Bobby. So one of the family friends, Paul Mizzy, took Bobby and the other children to the lake to do some fishing, while Lessie remained at the cabin preparing lunch. Um, Lessie called Paul and the boys back for lunch a few hours later, but on the short walk from the water back to the cabin, Bobby disappeared. The family immediately began searching for Bobby around the lake and along the wagon trails nearby, in case Bobby had tried to follow his father back to Opelousas. Uh, when they found no sign of him, they reported him missing to the local police, who quickly dragged the lake and the next morning sent divers into the water to see if they could find a body. All they found was the body of a deer. And we should point out that this this is Swampsville. <laughs> the lake literally runs into a body of water called the bayou. It's, yeah. it's very swampy. It's not... Muddy it's water. Not like, yeah, it's it's not what you picture a lake house being. Well, maybe you do if you live in Louisiana. I don't know. <laughs> Never been. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a very swampy area. It's not, not, not like your crystal clear mountain lake kind of thing yeah it's it's if you get lost in the water it's going to be difficult to find you yeah Uh, the day after bobby disappeared more than 500 men had come to help with the search for the young boy the dunbar family returned to opelousas but paul mizzy and the other family friends remained at the cabin for weeks afterwards to help with the search with no indication that he had drowned in the lake it was thought that bobby could have uh, been taken by a predator such as a bear or an alligator So police began killing large alligators and cutting them open to see if they could find Bobby's remains inside the animals. That's very... Just going to breeze straight past that. Yeah. Um, Later, a set of (laughs) footprints were found leading from the swamp up to a uh, railroad trestle bridge. And it was theorized that Bobby could have made his way to the trestle and wandered off along the railroad and gotten lost. Uh, But with no evidence nor any trace of Bobby found, those searching for him began to wonder if he had maybe been kidnapped. Um, Bobby's father traveled 130 miles to New Orleans to hand out 700 flyers with Bobby's photo and a description that read, Age four years old and four months, full size for age, stout but not fat, Large, round, blue eyes, light hair, and very fair skin with rosy cheeks. Left foot had been burned when a baby and shows a scar on the big toe, which is somewhat smaller than big toe on the right foot. Wore blue rompers and straw hat without shoes. Very detailed description. Yeah. Like, I'm impressed by that. So, a local detective agency made postcards with a photo and description and circulated them to town and county officials across southern states from Texas to Florida. Residents of Opelousa also raised a $1,000 reward for information leading to the discovery of Bobby Dunbar alive, um, which would be the equivalent of approximately $26,500 today. Um, uh, still, there was no sign of the missing boy, and ultimately the reward money was returned to the townspeople. That was until eight months later, when the Dunbars received word that a boy matching Bobby's description had been found in the community of Hub, 200 miles away in the neighboring state of Mississippi. 
A man named William C. Walters from North Carolina was staying in the hub area. He is described as a traveling salesman, a peddler, a tinker. We don't really know which one's the correct description. But he was traveling throughout the southern states with a young boy. Walters gave various stories about who the boy was and why he was with him. In some accounts, he's his son, in others, his nephew. After he was seen whipping the child, the local citizens detained Walters and examined the boy, as none of them had previously been able to get close enough to see if he was, in fact, Bobby Dunbar. Walters eventually settled on the story that the boy was his nephew, Bruce Anderson. Uh, Bruce Anderson, he said, was the child of his brother and his brother's mistress, Julie Anderson, who had cared for their ailing parents. But the ladies of Hub, that is how they are described, (laughs) uh, didn't believe his story and asked the Dunbars to send photos of Bobby so they could compare them to the boy. And they sent photos to the Dunbars for them to examine and asked if it was their son. And the Dunbars were sceptical, but agreed to travel to Mississippi and meet with the boy. The boy had the same moles and scars as Bobby, but refused to answer to the name Bobby and showed no emotion when he was reintroduced to his parents, refusing to interact with them at all, which is very similar to Arthur Hutchins when he was masquerading as Walter Collins. Um, The Dunbar parents still weren't entirely sure if this was their son, but they stayed in Hub and met with the boy again the next day. Um, And it's after this second meeting that the Dunbars claim to know that uh, this was their son without any doubt. William Walters continued to claim that the boy was his nephew, Bruce Anderson, and that his mother, Julia Anderson, had given him the boy willingly. Uh, Julia agreed that she allowed Walter to take her son for a few days, but not permanently. Um, And it had been 15 months since she had seen her son, And as a poor single mother, she didn't have the means to track him down as he traveled around the USA with her child. The boy returned to Opelousas with the Dunbar family. Um, The local residents threw a parade, and he was brought through the town on a fire truck, and his parents uh, even gifted him a new bike and a pony. What every kid wants. That's excessive. Like, you don't need both. No. You can ride. You can't ride both at the same time, so. Exactly. All the while, uh, Walters begged authorities to send for Julia and have her come to Louisiana and identify the boy. And if you're thinking that maybe Walters is just a man with a guilty conscience who wants to reunite mother and son, you would be wrong. Kidnapping was a capital offence at the time in Louisiana. And so if the boy was ruled to be Bobby Dunbar, Walters could be charged with kidnapping and then the death penalty would be on the table. If the boy was ruled to be Bruce Anderson, he would not be facing the death penalty as Julia initially allowed him to take the boy. Although he was supposed to bring him back a few days later. Minor detail. Eventually, a local newspaper paid for Julia Anderson to travel to Opelousa and see if she could identify the boy. Like Leslie Dunbar, Julia couldn't initially identify the boy as her own. But after a second meeting, she claimed him to be her son, Bruce. But unlike Leslie... The papers weren't kind to Julia and her name was dragged through the mud for not being able to identify the child immediately. Even though that's exactly what happened with Leslie and Percy Dunbar. Yeah, that's wild. Um, So the main attack on Julia stemmed from the fact that the boy had been born out of wedlock. And we all know 
just how evil having a child out of wedlock makes you. Especially no, right? in the teens in Louisiana, I'd imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, she also had two other uh, children, one of whom uh, had died. There were some newspaper reports from the time which stated that Lessie and Percy had said that the boy wasn't their son but kept him anyway and that the boy had not recognized his parents, brother, or any of the local children he had been friends with. Um, a local mediator was appointed in Opelousa to decide who the boy was and the boy was determined in court to belong to the Dunbar family. And now it's important to remember that Julia was in enemy territory, so to speak, in the Dunbar's hometown, and people thought she was trying to steal their child, essentially. Uh, and because Julia had no money for legal representation, she was unable to contest the ruling and had to return to North Carolina still missing her son. That That's the thing about this case. They're so evil to her. It's like, she is still missing her child. Yeah, like, uh, either like, way, there's still a missing kid here somewhere. Yeah, like bit of compassion maybe it's too much to ask um uh walters for his part went through a two-week kidnapping trial and was found guilty but was sentenced to life in prison rather than uh death julia did actually return to louisiana for walter's trial and met many residents from a town called poplarville in southern mississippi uh, which was a town that walters had spent a lot of time in prior to being arrested and many of the local residents of Poplarville traveled travel to Louisiana for the trial and protested Walter's innocence, supporting him and Julia in the claim that the boy was Bruce Anderson. The people of Poplarville claimed to have seen Walter's with the boy before Bobby Dunbar went missing. Um, but, you know, obviously, they don't know what they saw. Yeah, no, they're wrong. Uh, the people of Poplarville took Julia in and she eventually settled there marrying and having seven more children. She also founded a church and served as a nurse and midwife in the town. Despite her happy life in Poplarville, she frequently spoke of her son Bruce, who she always regarded as having been kidnapped by the Dunbars. Um, though the case had been a media sensation at the time, over the years, attention faded away and the two families lived in relative peace. Um, that was until 90 years later when one of, quote, Bobby Dunbar's um, granddaughters, Margaret Dunbar Cutright, began to look a bit deeper into her family's history. Uh, throughout the early 2000s, Margaret traveled around the southern states visiting small town archives and libraries to find out more about Bobby Dunbar's disappearance. She also tracked down Julia Anderson's descendants to find out what they knew about this chapter of their family's past. She had initially hoped to prove her family's claim that the boy had been Bobby Dunbar and justice was done when he remained with the Dunbar family. But after reading about the treatment of Julia Anderson and Opelousas and the conflicting accounts of the family reunion, she began to have doubts about whether the boy actually had been Bobby Dunbar. And this also brought up questions about her own identity. I mean, whose granddaughter was she really? Eventually, the Dunbar family decided to use DNA to settle the question once and for all. Samples were taken from the son of Alonso Dunbar. So remember, Alonso was Bobby's younger brother. Mm -hmm. and so this is the closest relative to the original Bobby Dunbar, who was still alive. 
and was compared to Margaret's father, who was Bob Dunbar Jr., who was the son of the changeling boy. And the samples did not match. The boy who was found with William Walters in Hub, Mississippi in 1913, eight months after Bobby went missing, was not Bobby Dunbar. <sighs> However, the samples weren't compared to any of Julia Anderson's descendants. So this isn't concrete proof that the boy was Bruce Anderson. Uh, another of Julia's sons, uh, Hollis Anderson, had been willing to provide DNA um, but he passed away before testing could be carried out. Now, although it is easy nowadays to do DNA testing, it was still a very expensive process in the early 2000s, um, which could have been why more tests weren't done at the time. But yeah, I can't remember. I think it was like thousands for DNA tests, like 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. Very, very expensive. They were very expensive. And it's and not, not, not necessarily easy to find a place to get it done. Like, it's, it's a yeah. lot different from now where they can just mail you a kit. Like, Yeah, and you can see why shows like Jerry Springer, Jeremy Kyle, all those kind of things sprung up. <laughs> um, yes, I just realized what I said. Springer sprung. Oh, I didn't even think about that, actually. <laughs> oh, I thought that's why you were laughing at me. No, I don't know why I'm laughing. But it's just what I do now, apparently. <laughs> But no, you can see why those kind of shows became popular because there was this technology that could answer people's questions. Yeah. But no one could afford it. Yeah. So. Oh, totally. Um, and we weren't actually able to find out if any more tests had been carried out. So we still don't know the identity of the boy who lived his whole life as Bobby Dunbar. Which is wild. Yeah. Um, I mean, there could have been tests carried out since then and they've just not been made public. Yeah, exactly. So... So if anyone it's knows, <laughs> yeah, please tell us. If you heard Bobby Dunbar Jr. Jr. Jr., let us know. Um, so Margaret's original aim was to settle the question of who she was and prove that she, her father, and grandfather were all Dunbars. But obviously, this did not go as planned. Um, her decision to carry out the DNA test caused some problems in uh, the family as well, with her uncle Gerard Dunbar, another of the boy's sons, saying, no matter how it turns out, there's going to be a sense of loss. But uh, her father, Bob Jr., recalled a conversation he had with his father when he was a teenager, where he had asked him how he knew that he was a Dunbar. And his father had told him, uh, I know who I am, and I know who you are, and nothing else makes a difference. And I think that's quite a nice sentiment to end on. Yeah. Because, yeah, okay, they don't know in terms of genetics, but they know who they are as a family unit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, DNA doesn't make a family. So, so what do we think? What are your thoughts on these changelings? It's, uh, I don't know. Like, these are so hard because I feel like the, the Collins case obviously is a bit more cut and dried and like whether or not uh, Walter Collins was uh, a victim of the, the Wineville chicken coop uh, murders, that could certainly be debated, you know, but... Yeah, 
I mean, there's there's no body, but the Northcotts had confessed to trying to dispose of bodies in quicklime. Yeah. Not quicklime. Yeah, quicklime. Yeah. Um, so it is possible yeah. that that's why his remains weren't found. Yeah. And like, so that one's a little bit easier to say like, okay, well, this was what happened. And then this other kid came in and, and like, and all that. But yeah. the this Dunbar case is totally nuts because like <laughs> you've got you've got two people, two sets of adults basically that are saying like, oh, I'm not sure he's my son. Oh no, wait, he is my son. And then, I mean, how if you're it's, it's like a big tug of war. It is, and if you're for a child, if you're like Percy and, and Lessie Dunbar. And you've said definitively, okay, this is my son. And then five months later, you realize, I don't think this is my kid mm-hmm. after all. Like, what the fuck are you going to do? The town's going to hate you if you say, "Yeah, oh, I was wrong. And, and the Dunbar case reminds me a lot of the Shannon Matthews case, which we obviously did only a couple of weeks ago, that the Dunbars clearly had money. Pony money. They had. They had pony money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They could buy a pony and a brand new bike, but they also had, like, a lake house. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, you know, do seem to have, like, a higher social standing, whereas Julia Anderson was a single mother. Um, She had lost, you know, she had literally lost one child. One had died, and I think the other was put up for adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was, you know, treated as this, you know, really bad mother. She couldn't identify her child. Well, neither could Lessie and Percy Dunbar, but they were treated completely differently. Exactly. Um, and yeah, in the end, she may have been right. May have been her son. Yeah, I mean, certainly seems like highly likely. Um, um, yeah, as you say, the, the Walter Collins case is very kind of cut and dry. Yeah. Even if, he wasn't a victim of the the chicken coop murders. Yeah, he wasn't the you know, boy that showed come... up. Yeah, that was that was Arthur Hutchins, and he was dealt with and sent to juvenile delinquency school. Mm-hmm. But I feel so so sorry for for Christine Collins. She never got her son back, but she always had that hope. Yeah, because his body had never been found, and you know, spent the next thirty six years searching, and that could drive you insane and very probably did by the end yeah and like staying in los angeles too in hopes that you know he would come back there. yeah that's just <laughs> really it, hard it, it goes back to the question you ask in every miss you ask people in every sort of long-term missing person's case when do you give up yeah how do you give up I th- you know, I feel like do you wake up one morning and say, "Oh no, enough time's passed," or you know, which some people do, and some people make their peace with it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong either way. Yeah, but I feel like it would be even harder in this instance to have already like gone through the ordeal of like initially thinking that he had been found, and then yeah. like realizing, "Oh, this is not my kid," to then to ever give up on another chance of finding him again, I feel like would be impossible. Yeah, it's a really sad case. Um, 
And the same for Julia Anderson, you know, she never found out what happened to her child. Yeah. Um. So yeah, lovely cherry note to end on. Well, but I mean, I think it is nice that at least her descendants, her her you know family, have a better idea now of what happened. Yeah. And that there's a dialogue between the two families now as well. Yeah, what well, that's really that's really good um, too. Yeah. So slightly brighter note to end on there. Yeah. Um, yeah. With all yeah, that, just said, a slightly cl- like like a slight cloud in front of the sun. <laughs> yeah. Instead of like a rainy thunderstorm. Yeah. Um. So with all that said, uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, come and join us on social media and tell us what you think of these two cases who do you think was the real Bobby Dunbar Um, and uh, we'd like to just do a a huge quick huge thank you to everyone who has listened to any of our episodes ever um, because last week we hit 3,000 downloads uh, which is super cool and super exciting Um, and yes we're very very excited about this yes uh so and actually if you go to our social media um we are running a little 3000 download celebration giveaway right now that you can enter if you go check that out so uh do that free stuff is fun um and we would also love it if you could subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a rating and review um, because this helps us reach a larger larger audience and continue to grow. Um, and we also have a new Patreon supporter to thank. So thank you, uh, Laura Dolsky, uh, for signing up and, and checking out all the, the extra content we have on Patreon. And if like Laura, you would like to support the show even more, you too can sign up to become a patron of the show. Pledges start from just $1 a month, which is about 80 pence, less than a can of iron brew. Head over to patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder for more information or to sign up. And thank you everyone for listening. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. Yes. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.